0: Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. John Lund is a classically trained composer whose musical scores are continuously in high demand. John is probably best known for scoring the hugely successful drama Downton Abbey, for which he has received two Primetime Emmy Awards and two BAFTA nominations. John has also scored the Downton Abbey movie, which was released in September 2019. John's recent work includes The Grandchester Mysteries by author James Runcie, The White Queen and The White Princess, based on the best-selling novels by Philippa Gregory, the former of which he received a Primetime Emmy nomination for, Shetland, The Last Kingdom, To Walk Invisible, and The Bronte Sisters. John has received critical acclaim for three adaptations of Charles Dickens' classics. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, for which he was nominated for an Ivor Novello Award, Little Dorrit, which garnered both a BAFTA nomination and his first Primetime Emmy nomination, and Bleak House, for which he received RTS Best Score and Best Title nominations. All right, Mr. John Len, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, good.
1: Yeah, nearly, nearly a Friday evening here in London, you know. Sun's sort of shining, but it's still really cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a cold, rainy day here in uh, in Ottawa. Uh, John, I am absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast, and I'm, I'm so very grateful to be able to welcome such an accomplished composer and musician to the podcast. The creation and enjoyment of music has been a huge part of my life for well over 30 years, I've always been fascinated by music's ability to evoke emotion, enhance motivation, really speak without saying a word in some ways. For many people, I think music can have a profound impact on mood and performance, maybe in ways that could even eclipse, you know, what therapy, medication, or even a substance might offer. Uh, I have so many questions, but I I guess we'll see how far we get. Right. Great. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So John, of course, the audience will have heard the bio that I did a voiceover before we started chatting. Yeah, of course just for some context, I'd love to hear about your background and training and how you broke into the music business.
1: Yeah. So um, I started actually quite late. I didn't really start an instrument until I was about, well, just just about, around about 14, which was really late to start a music instrument. And it was so stupid. My father was a, an amateur sax player. So he was very keen for me to take up an instrument and when I was about eight, seven or eight, was which is when I should have taken it up. Um, I was just more much I more more keen on football, you know. And I just thought, you know, I wasn't something. They were wanting me to pick up the violin. Actually, that's what. It, um. Anyway, I resisted it. But as I got older, you know, twelve, thirteen, I got I got really into music. And my dad was would play quite a lot of jazz in the house, so I became I really got into Miles Davis. Duke ellington at a very early age and then you know when so this would be 19 like you know the very late 60s 60s and of course i got really interested in you know progressive rock music and you know led zeppelin Jimi hendrix and and that was all beginning to have an influence and um, and i just you know i just by the time i was like 13 i was just really really obsessed with music and and also, my mum was playing Bach as well, and and that was having an effect, you know, too. So eventually, um, I went along to my school music department and said, "Listen, I'd really like to play an instrument." And um, and they said, "Well, we've got some vacancies, but the only vacancies we've got at the moment are for double bass." So, um, which I took, and actually, it was just the ideal instrument because it's so big you couldn't really have played it before you were 14 you could, you could sort of There were kind of half-size ones but really um, and so I you know I just took to it like a d Dr. water and then very you know six months later they said listen you know I think you're going to be a musician um, you should take up the piano as well which I did and then I I just got more and more obsessed with it and then just by the time I was 18 well by the time I was 16 I knew I was going to be a musician and i became interested in how music was put together partly because i think because i started i could i could have become a professional double bass player but i started too late to ever become a professional piano player pianist really in, in certainly in classical music and so i i began to get more and more interested in the music itself And by the time I was 18, instead of going to music college, I actually went to university um, to study, which was by far the best thing um, I did because the focus was on not just analysis of music. There was a a fair amount of that. Um, But there was also um, there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, different kind of music making. There was no there wasn't a speciality on just your instrument that, you know, we had to you know i I ended up doing like medieval music and and also electronic music and stuff like that that would never would, music colleges in those days were just paying lip service to that kind of thing so um and then I left university and when i left i they university turned me into a composer but i was because of my jazz background as well I was doing a lot of different things. I ended up coming down to London to join a pop band. Um, but at the same time I was also writing like really complex avant garde classical music too. But anyway, I ended up in this band that was really quite experimental and we ended up playing with um modern dance companies like Ballet Rombert and you know, it wasn't actually ballet, it was much more it was really contemporary dance. And then that band split up, but I carried on uh, with the dance companies, and they ended up writing music for them, and you know, playing for them, and and of course, it, what I was writing had a kind, of, some kind of programmatic element to it. It had a sort of story, and I discovered that you know, I quite, although the stories would be quite oblique, um, they kind of resonated with me that idea of using music to sort of paint a story. It uh, seemed to come quite naturally, and from then, you know, it was really, it it was just it was a you know a, a very easy move into into film and TV. That's kind of how I got there. But, you know, in the ten years before I did my first film, after having maybe it wasn't ten years, it was eight years after I graduated, before I did my first movie, I'd done just about every conceivable style of music, you know, you you name it, and I'd written written it. So I was kind of that, you know, that, uh, that background, you know, lot, you know, very, very, very good, uh, you know, official, you know, proper music education at the same time, you know, you're actually playing in bands and, um, and doing all sorts of kinds of kinds of music.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of cross training going on that would have allowed you to pull from all different sort of genres to, you know, to do the work that you do today
1: absolutely you know it's and and it's still all that's still really valuable today because you know sometimes people don't really know what kind of music they want for their film so you, you do have to be very you know flexible and you know very i mean obviously there are some composers who do have a style and you'd go to that composer you know for a particular style i've got nothing against that but i mean i'm just not one of those i you know i i can you know I can change my style to suit the to suit the movie, basically. You know, I don't feel as if I'm set in any one. Well, although people say they can always tell it's me, but I, I don't see how you could, you know, tell that. You know, the composer of Downton Abbey was the same for the Last Kingdom. <laughs>
0: Well, that was certainly my experience because, you know, that's how I in part stumbled across you was that my wife and I were watching Last Kingdom. I love the music. So I looked up who was doing it. Of course, it was, turned out to be you. And then this, you know, Downton Abbey, the White Queen, the White Princess. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All things I'm familiar with, but I had no idea that it was you that was a common denominator across each one of those different pieces of uh, of television and film. So, John, I'm going to I'll I'll hit you with a heavy question right off the bat. Do you have any theories on why humans have the capacity to create and enjoy music? You know, it really fascinates me that while a minor key or a chord can evoke sadness or melancholy, a major key or a chord can provide energy or create a sense of happiness. It, it strikes me as amazing that our brain is predisposed to be affected in this way when really any chord or progression of chords, they're just sound waves with no objective meaning we project this onto it. So any, any thoughts on, on the human capacity to create and enjoy music?
1: Boy, that's a hell of a question. <laughs> yes, um, and you know, and one, and one, I you know, I think I think about you know all the time. I mean, the, the you know the in, the minor major thing, of course, is really interesting because you know I get, you know, somebody you know, this would be a bad director. A, a, a bad director might say to me, "I don't want any minor chords." You know, I mean, that's just impossible. You know, he doesn't really understand. You know the 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 way that harmony, and a lot of it is to do with that the way that you move from minor to major, or how you it's the chord progression itself, and it's what's happening. So it's kind of like a it's almost like a harmony is a bit like a sort of three D sort of puzzle because also there's time you got to take into you know context as well, and you know your your uh, the ears ability to retain you know a chord for instance i never start i always look at the the whole the entirety of a, a film and work out the keys that 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 you know that the music is is in so that you know one cue q2 cue will never start in the same key as q1 because sometimes you want to feel a kind of progression and there might be like 10 minutes between both cues but the ear can re- can retain that ability to remember what key the first one was in it's really astonishing you know i i mean i don't really know how such chords or chord progressions make you cry but obviously i mean that's what i was responding to when i was very young that's why i was getting more and more into music was you know was have you know that this realization that it was really having quite a profound effect on me but Am I any closer to working out why it has that effect? Probably
0: not. No. I know how to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's to my next question. John, when you're, when you're writing, do you rely upon your own emotional reaction to what you're composing? Or do you have sort of, I don't want to say formulas, but do you have methodology that you know will kind of get you there? Or is it a blend of the two? How do you go about reliably evoking emotion through your composition?
1: I very rarely compose away from the picture. I'm always looking at the video, you know, of, I'm always looking at the movie. And what I usually do is I usually improvise to it, you know, while what and I never switch the dialogue off. But, you know, we're listening to the dialogue carefully. And, you know, it, I mean, if it's a really, really moving scene and... You know, I'm expecting the audience to kind of sort of, you know, be to emotionally well up or even cry. I, I think, if I at w- at one point I will have improvised my way through that scene, and if and I, I will have had that that feeling myself, and then of course, when once I've done that, then I know I'm onto something, and then and then then of course it's a bit more you have to sort of step back because of the mechanics of actually you you know the the process of building it up you know technically but then but i will have had that feeling and i will know what i've done what will have created that feeling and how to and how to then organise it so it's very very instinctual and it's very improvisatory in a way for instance you know there's a software program for writing music down called sibelius i i don't know how to use it i've never used it yeah, you know, I mean, I always pay somebody to to you know to do the the parts once I've done with it. But I'm a very although I could, you know I could easily write it all down myself. I'm still one of those composers. I need to be able to hear it myself. You know, I could probably take the take you know a rough score away and then you know and add things to it you know quite easily. But I I need to be able to hear. myself how it actually goes you know rather than just looking at it you know printed out on paper
0: one of the questions i want to ask you about was stuart copeland of course the drummer of the police he's also scored a lot of movies uh and i believe some television as well he talks about musicians of the ear uh like you know say what your standard rock musician self-taught a little bit less structured not relying on sheet music versus musicians of the eye, you know, classically trained, sight reading, more structured. And he feels musicians tend to be born into one camp or the other. It's almost like when the sperm hits the egg, you're kind of going to end up one or the other. What do you think about this idea of musicians of the ear versus musicians of the eye?
1: Well, I can do both. But I'll t- I think musicians of the ear is by far the most important. In fact, I'd almost as go as far as to say that a musician of the eye is possibly not even a musician at all.
0: More like a technician of some kind.
1: Yeah. You have to have the you have to have the ear. I mean.
0: Do you ever see that in uh in accomplished players where like extremely technically sound, but they're they're sort of in some sense confined by um you know a certain structure that they need to be in place that they have trouble improvising, or at the top level can people do it all?
1: I think at the top level people can most people can do it all. I mean, one of the um there's a guitar player that I've collaborated with um, a lot. I've done, um, although we have actually we haven't worked together for about ten years. He can't he can't read music, but he's the best musician I've ever met, you know. And he can you can play something to him once, and he picks it up and he remembers it. And and I've met musicians like that all my life. And then there are incredibly accomplished classical musicians that I've worked with who have absolutely no idea what key they're playing in. I find that astonishing. Um, and that's partly to do with their education. You know, the obsession with the, the obsession certainly here in Britain with performing music that's already been written. You know, m- most music colleges have, used to have. I mean, it's all kind of changing now. But when I was studying, there was just so much emphasis on or on a realization from the classical world that you know music is something that really needs to be composed yes it's nice to be able to play beethoven but the, you know it has to go on and so by far the best classical musicians for me are obviously ones who've been through and can got a phenomenal technique but i need them to have some element of you know either you know improvisatory or I mean I do remember um having a very interesting conversation with my son's piano teacher who was um incredible player and he could play Chopin and and he he once said to me, um he said I've never played two notes on my own. So I I, I I tried to get him to just to sit down at the piano, okay, just play two notes, make something of it you know, using two notes and it like it had been taught out of him, right? You know, you can, you know, a primary school kid could have done better than he did <laughs> Um, and it was, it was a sort of bizarre. I have, I have, however, I do think that is changing now. I mean, we are getting a lot of, you know, really good classical musicians here in London. I mean, so, so the, the, the level of playing here in London is, is, is phenomenal. But you know we tend to to look out for those people who are you know have that kind of you know practical ability to be able to and be able to also to be able to understand you know the music that's going on and what what they're you know they're 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 asked to do. So sorry, slight, I slightly got off beat there on that answer, but yeah, I'm I'm although I've you know I've had that you know that thorough music education. I'm probably much more in the pop world, improvisatory world now than I've ever been.
0: No, I really appreciate that reflection, John. Uh, in preparing for our discussion today, I, I think I read in a couple of interviews at least that you, you do like to make people cry with your music. And uh, wh- why is this? Wh- why is that a, a sort of a an identifiable endpoint for you as far as being a composer?
1: I, th- I suppose that's kind of what got me into it in the first place. You know, it's kind of, you know, I do, I remember. You know, watching you know uh, movies when I was a kid, and and uh, and and you know, being surprised at how you know how I felt about it and how my reaction, and of course, you know, the realization that there was a music that was doing a lot of it. I just, I just really li- like the power of it. It's kind of you know the, I mean, I know it sounds like manipulative and kind of you know dictatorial, but actually. <laughs> you know there is <laughs> it is kind of you know it's a nice thing to do that to feel that people have you know got that you know from your music and it's very healthy i think you know to have that kind of reaction as well so you know that kind of level of emotion i think is generally healthy for people psychologically
0: well, that's what I loved about playing live in bands is I think everyone should get to have the experience of seeing an entire room of people, preferably a packed room of people, really modulating and moving to the sounds that you're making. And I've always played bass in most of the bands that I've played in. And bass in particular has an ability to really, I think, almost subliminally affect people, right? It's like, yeah, you, you don't notice a good rhythm section unless they're bad, right? It's kind of more yeah, felt than yeah. heard in, in, yeah. in some way. So I, I really resonate with that idea of it's fun to evoke feelings and emotions in people and then see that translate into movement and all kinds of things.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Film students quite often, you know, when they're about 20, 21, ask me for a bit of advice. And of course they've been working on their computers, um, mainly, you know, and I said, I, my first piece of advice is go and join a band because you need to build, you know, that, not. There's nothing like that, you know, ability to be able to work and mold music with, you know, other musicians. Even if you end up just being a film composer on your own, you know, it's that but that level of collaboration and 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 instinct and 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 the way you you respond to things that other people have done, you know, kind of is, is so important.
0: I I couldn't agree more. I have taken so much from playing in multiple multiple bands over the years. Into two different professional contexts because it's taught me so much about human nature, collaborating, chemistry, yeah. fit, compromise, you know? Absolutely. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's an amazing experience. John to, to my particular musical taste and appreciating this may not be true of everybody. The, the most iconic melodies for me somehow seem to evoke both happiness and sadness all at the same time. And I'm not sure there's one word that would kind of capture this. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this and this idea of, Sort of simultaneously feeling both happy and sad as a function of a, a musical passage.
1: Yeah, gosh, that's uh, you know, I think most things that have that I do have do have some kind of barely sort of melancholic element to it. I mean, and it's just the level of it, I suppose. Like the *Downton Abbey* theme, for instance, is. You know that the chords are quite sad, but the but the energy in it is quite propulsive, and it it kind of it sort of tells you in a way what you're about to see. It's sort of you know this is going to be there's probably going to be some tragedy in here, and there's probably going to be some love, but it's also possibly going to be quite exciting at the same time. Kind of so yeah, you are you are. I'm aware that I'm constantly doing more than one thing, you know, with my music. I mean, sometimes it's just again, it's just you know, so instinctual. You can, it's funny as what's amazing. I think is when you get it right, you and you can't, you just can't imagine a scene without with different music. It's um it's extraordinary, you know, when that when that when that happens.
0: I, I wanted to ask you about that about the you know the Downton Abbey theme is so distinctive and iconic and And when you came up with this, did you know right away that you had something special did did it evolve into the sort of special piece that we all know it to be now what What's that experience like of getting it right
1: uh yeah, so what happened was the very first episode had didn't have a title sequence. it just started straight into to the first episode, and it had a train um and then there was Bates looking forlornly out of the the carriage window, a man who looked like he'd had a past, didn't an uncertain future. And then we kind of followed a telegram. And the telegram the telegram was technically um carrying the information that the heir to Downton Abbey had been drowned on the Titanic. And of course the audience know nothing of this at all. And there's no you know in the very first episode there's virtually no dialogue in the first ten minutes. Mainly all music, and so, so for the train, you know, I, I, you know, I had a bit of energy, to go da 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 da, da you know, kind of, and then for Bates looking for lonely out of the window, I had, you know, the da da on picked out almost as if it was like a one single finger pianist, you know, kind of quite lonely, you know, sort of notes, and then for the telegram, I had this rising string theme, da 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 da. And you sort of follow all that through, and and what it's kind of sort of doing is subliminally kind of, you know, making things, you know, more important than, you know, and then they were, you know, for like, you know, from why are we following a telegram, you know, poll? Well, the music is really quite emotive there, so it must mean something, you know, and then, and then we finally arrive at a picture of the house and the harmony kind of moves becomes more expansive and kind of you know empowering you know just for the house itself so there are elite so there are those four elements to it and they all work really really well you know for that scene and so i think we used it in the first episode i used that material like three or four times um i think it was in like a 90 minute episode so Whenever it came, it just seemed to, you know, it just seemed to work. And then we then we used it for the end titles for that episode. And then when it came to episode two, they asked me to write a 30 second version of that tune, which I did. And then they put the pictures to the music, which was quite interesting for me because if I'd been given those pictures, For the title i'd probably written something completely different you know because it's kind of dusting chandeliers and you know and it's kind of quite grand and it's all about the house whereas the music's doing doing a lot of the heavy lifting about you know what it is what Downton Abbey is really i mean you can't really tell from the pictures of the actual title sequence what you're about to see so the music the music's doing a lot
0: it's amazing how non-linear the creative process is, right? You have these happy accidents, if I can call it that, where things just end up working out, but in a way you could never sort of orchestrate, let's say.
1: I do say to people, you know, quite often when I'm working on something, they'll want the, um, the first step, the, you want the title music, you know, kind of first. And I always say, no, 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 wait, you know, let me get through to the end of the film or the first episode. And then by the time I get through to the end of the first episode, I'll know what the title music is, you know, it'll be screaming at me, you know, kind of, this is it, it's me, it's me, it's me, you know, rather than thinking of it in isolation, I don't like to do that, it kind of, you know, I like to be able to respond to what I'm, the, what I'm seeing, and what I'm hearing, you know, in terms of the dialogue and the way things are moving and, and going,
0: and, you know, and then I react to that, basically. John, the, uh, the the theme of Uhtred from Last Kingdom, and and I I cannot pronounce the name for for the life of me. Can you help me out with that one? tracker Yes, that's it. The yes, slow one. For, yes, thanks for helping me out with the pronunciation. That's a that's a really special piece of music to me. I, it really caught my ear. Can you break down that piece a little bit for me? Yeah. So I'll tell you what exactly what happened.
1: So they when they were doing um, when they were doing that first episode of the Last Kingdom, they actually used some. Um, African music, and there was somebody playing a uh, cora as well. And it, of course, it was all wrong for you know period, and and uh, and and the fact you know it was it, it just wasn't the, the right music. We just couldn't use it, but it had a flavour to it, you know, of just a soul singer playing a kora And then one day I was lying in. Bed late at night, and I heard somebody playing a lyre, which was like a, a kind of six-string sort of instrument. And I thought, oh my god, that sounds like the Kora. And of course, the lyre was around at those days in the, in the ninth century. And so, so I went on eBay the next day and bought one. And and you know, I'm a bit of a string player. I'm you know, I'm a double bass, bass guitar. You know, I I I you know, I can. I can get my way around just virtually any string instrument, so I taught myself to play the lyre, and 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 so that the that the that was the first thing of that track was that 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 um, string line they go da 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 da, and I was kind of trying to emulate the Kora in a way. I wasn't like trying to do a medieval sort of. You know part or something that sounded you know medieval, and I put some chords to it and it, it i mean it just had the right feel for that it it was a it was a scene of kind of which was unusual in those those days it was kind of like um it was a Viking village, and everyone was at peace and it was kind of you know there was a good harvest and it had a kind of you know but it,
0: was, it had a sort of emotional you know, sort of quality to it. And well that's exactly what I was getting at with my comment before. Like to me it's got that happy and sad thing going at the same time. Absolutely. You know, like maybe there's a loss, but you know there's gonna be love, you know, expressed at the same time. So it can work for so yeah, it worked for that scene. And then it also
1: worked, you know, for places where, you know, it's really desperately sad. So I sent it off to um Ivor, um pals dottier who we, we've we've been collab we were already collaborating you know on other aspects of it um and uh and 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 she put the she put the lyrics to it so i mean i could even be getting love striker wrong <laughs> you know that's her it's a f- and the language is Faroese. she's from the farewells although she lives in copenhagen um and and basically my my agent showed me a a YouTube video of her singing and playing the drum. And she was doing this really, really uh aggressive sort of throat singing. And I just thought it would be perfect for, you know, for The Last Kingdom. So I got in touch with her and flew her over from uh Copenhagen. And we spent three days in the studio my studio here, you know, just, you know, trying out, you know, some ideas. And she was just phenomenal. I mean really really amazing um and so we decided uh, you know at that time i was thinking of just you know like hiring a singer in for occasional you know uh cues that we might do but what she was doing was just so incredible that i i i asked her if she'd like to just collaborate in the whole thing you know together um and she agreed um and it's been amazing i mean we're now you know we're really good friends um and although I, what no, oh, not necessarily. Sometimes, so I usually kind of organize the track in some way. And then she just does her thing on top of it. And then, you know, we might edit it slightly, you know, when it comes back. And um, so it's been a very, very collaborative process. And occasionally she's come up with some sensational stuff just out of the blue. which She's sent, you know, which I've just gone, oh, right. I can definitely use that. Um so, no, it's, that's been an amazing collaboration, really. Um, and it's so simple, that track, loose Tracker. So simple. It's like got, it's mainly built on two chords.
0: Yeah, I hopped on the guitar and just kind of, you know, very quickly was able to sort of ascertain what was going on. And it just works like that. That The, the chord change is just so simple, but so elegant and beautiful at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And her singing is just stunning. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: John, I've heard many musicians say that the best ideas come easy, sometimes within seconds or minutes, uh, whereas those that they struggle with don't often stand up as well uh, over time. Has this been true for you?
1: Yeah, there's one thing I'm doing at the moment. I'm really struggling. I think one of the things that is important for me, uh, I mean, as a composer, is that ability to be able to play something and recognise that you're onto an idea, and then grasp onto it, you know, and then take it, you know, somewhere and that does require concentration you know it's not an easy it's not an easy job you know no matter how good you are and it's stressful as well and yeah I mean there's one job I'm doing at the moment that I am um, I quite like some of what I've done um, but there's, there's that sort of feeling that I'm really kind of missing something like that you know like that Downton Abbey tune that had all those four elements to it that all those four elements could could exist on their own or they could all exist together or just a couple of them together. It was almost like a sort of modular kind of approach. And I'm really I'm trying to find something similar to this. You know, but I keep I keep I keep writing something that sounds this sounds like it's going to be great in Downton Abbey. <laughs> you know, but I it can't it's not Downton Abbey, so I can't you know. So um so you it's 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 still a struggle, you know. It's a and 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 every new job, you know, requires a kind of, you know, kind of rethink. And you know, for instance, what I might do, I'm not getting anywhere at the moment for this new job. I mean, I might just take a week off, you know, and then and reset myself, and you know, and come, come back to. it.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what's the point where you maybe just walk away from the, uh, it's like, okay, this line of thinking just isn't going anywhere. I've got to sort of maybe delete it and come in with, with a fresh perspective.
1: Yeah, Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. That's also a, one of the issues um, is, you know, is committing to a certain uh, uh, idea. And I can live in what I call an ecstasy of indecision for <laughs> a long time. You know, before deciding, okay, let's go down this route. Um, I think that's one of my problems. I can sit on an idea for too long without, you know, really exploring whether it is the the right one or not. But I'm too old to change now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. You're making such great points, right? Because, like, in terms of, you know, creativity and productivity, you know, self-editing is very difficult because the mind is prone to falling in love with its own creations. And so I'm always very interested about how people, especially when they work alone, like how do they know when they're onto something and, you know, if it does it for them, perhaps it will do it for other people. And if it's not doing it for them, they have to be honest with themselves and say, Hey, you know what? I'm not feeling it. So why would anybody else? Like, I think that's a hard process to manage
1: yeah I mean there's a couple of things on this new project that I've done where i that I've thought oh that's really uh that that's great that's great um and both director and producer have uh i think one of the issues I'm having at the moment is that every on everything I do the producer will like what I've done and the director won't or vice versa it's one of those so I'm kind of that that can become a bit of a problem because you're wondering which one to sort of try and please. And at the moment, I haven't quite worked out why one will like one thing and the other will like it. So that's quite a tricky position.
0: I was going to ask you another question just sort of related to that. Like, and perhaps you're going to go there, like how do you manage sort of market external forces versus your own internal creative values like have you just been lucky that they match up with sort of pop culture and what people like to hear or do you have a certain are you able to sort of craft something that's maybe not something you're particularly fond of but you know it's what the person needs like how do you kind of knit the two together
1: i I suppose i'm not that precious in a way about what i do you know if somebody doesn't like something that i've done for for it i don't i don't mind i'll turn around and you know and write something else my i just feel my job is really to is really to you know to tell the story you know of what's going on, and it is a collaboration you know it's a collaboration between me and the editor and the director and the and the actors um and I like being part of that so so that's not really an issue you know for me i mean if I have to write something I don't really like but it works for the movie, then you know I'm more than happy you know that's that's absolutely fine by me. I think I have been lucky in that um, you know most of the stuff I've done I've really enjoyed doing and and at the same time I've really liked you know what I've done. I was very keen to do The Last Kingdom after doing Downton Abbey because I was getting a bit typecast for Downton Abbey, and although it's kind of like classical, it's kind of like modern classical music, really Downton Abbey, but. I I just find found that um, I uh, you know I was really I'm also really into electronic music, so I was really keen to do something you know sort of really completely different, and I really flung myself into that. I mean, and really apart from Ivor's singing and me playing the occasional lyre, uh, you know the rest of it is all synths, you know, and it's set in ninth century you know England, um, but the score is mainly all synthesizers, you know, Synthesis, and analog yeah. ones.
0: Yeah, it has a strangely almost 80s quality to it to me, like those old 80s analog synths, uh the Juno's, yep. Korg's, things like that. And it almost reminded me a little bit of the music from the Neverending Story, uh if you've ever seen that movie from this is back in the 80s. Uh but it was a German composer I believe who did this. Was it Giorgio Moroder or somebody like that? Was it or I can't I can't recall the name. Can't remember, I can not remember right. But yeah, no,
1: so it's, you know, it's may it's mainly it's mainly using, you know, Moog Moog and Oberheim uh, synthesizers, and as you can see, well, the viewers won't be able to see it, but behind me, um, there's a lot of what we call Euro rack, which is um, kind of you know sort of synthesizer modules which you can sort of patch together, um, uh, and yeah, but I you know I find that really interesting. You know that was quite a challenge. You know deciding because we made the decision very early on in The Last Kingdom that we weren't going to do a sort of pseudo orchestral. Score. It needed, it needed to be something, you know, more original,
0: um, and I think it work, I think it works really well. I I think it totally works to me. It's kind of like you know the police taking rock and reggae, putting it together, and then you get something different. I think the Last Kingdom sort of motif with the with the Vikings and, and the ninth nice century England, plus the sort of more like eighties analog synth, it works beautifully. It's a really yeah. really interesting s- yeah. synthesis. Yeah. John, I've heard uh, different artists talk about almost sort of downloading songs rather than composing them. Like, like it's almost like the songs already exist in some other dimension, and it's their job as the artist to extract these in some way. Like, they just kind of come to them. I've heard McCartney talk about this, uh, others as well, uh, where it was, the song was there for them to discover. And it's it's almost like a miracle. Or they feel like it's just such a gift to, to stumble across this idea. Have you had that kind of an experience in your compositional career?
1: No. No, I don't think so. No. No, I, I don't. I've never really felt. No. I mean, obviously, some things have just sort of arrived. But then, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years. And I think about music, you know, every day. And I play I'm playing it every day, so you know, I have a, I have an an enormous amount of experience. So, whenever I sit down to do something, something's always going to kind of happen, or you know, and I wouldn't say, no, I, I've never really had that experience.
0: So, John, I think you've alluded to this, but I'd love to know what your creative process is like. Do you approach it like a work day where you're writing a little bit, you know, uh, every day or spending a set time at it? If a muse strikes you two in the morning, do you go down to the studio and and get it down? What's your workflow like uh, in in terms of composition?
1: The last year has been a bit strange because of the COVID restrictions. And also, I'm... Last August, I decided to take advantage of the fact that there was, you know, that there was a huge delay in, in filming to completely redesign my studio. But so, it's, I mean, literally today is the first time I've actually been back in my new studio. Um, so I've had a, i had ai do have another studio, a second studio, um, which is a couple of miles away. Um, it's not quite so extensive, but I can write there. So I've been... I've been going there like every day, so it's it's become a bit more like a like a normal job. You know, I try and get up there for nine o'clock in the morning, and you know, probably work till about five. Um, Whereas normally, um, in my studio, which is in the basement of our house, you know, I could quite normally I'd be starting work at eight. I think the best music gets written between the hours of eight and midday and then you know i might have some dinner and then i might come back down and you know and and carry on doing some work or i might not you know i mean i probably work most days to be honest you know i might even i might just work on a saturday morning and a sunday morning and take the rest of the the day off but it's pretty full on yeah most of
0: the time yeah and John just to come back to in terms of crafting the emotional texture of the music I know something that really matters for me either as the listener or the creator is the uh the tone you know like a chorus effect or a really nice analog delay with a sort of a dirty decay on it like that really to me makes the difference right Yeah how much t- how much time and investment do you put into getting the tone right if I'm using the right word
1: Um or a lot Yeah I mean especially if the i mean if the sound is gonna stay, then uh, yeah, what I don't do is I don't spend a lot of time on doing orchestral mock ups you know because that's all gonna get replaced by real instruments but if I'm using synthesizers or you know or or I'm trying to, or i'm I'm playing something myself like a double bass or you know then I'll spend quite a lot of time you know and an effort, and I've got quite a lot of gear as well to do that properly i mean yeah that aspect of it i do very
0: professionally so this leads me to sort of the paradox of choice right like if you buy any modern effects processor there's there's way more settings than one could possibly ever get through in a lifetime in some ways right do you ever do you ever feel like i see the again people can't see it but there is a a massive amount of gear behind you. Do you ever feel paralyzed by the, you know, sort of by the, the weight of possibility with respect to getting it right when there's like 200 versions of getting it right in some way, right? With quite a lot
1: of the stuff that behind me, I set, I, I get an idea for a sound in my head and then I, I set about trying to get it in the process. I don't come anywhere near it, but somehow something else happens. That's kind of, luck you know and you grab it and you go oh oh my god oh that's great but i'm you know i don't really know how i kind of got there and that's what i like about that that kind of thing is uh, you know is is the end kind of endless possibilities and, and then and then the the possibility of actually finding something that you'd never really thought of and that's what synthesizers can do for you, the way they the way that they interact, you know, with each other. All these modules kind of interact. Um and you know, quite a lot of The Last Kingdom was done like that, was just working with, you know, analogue sequencers and setting them up. And then some of them just some you know, you just arrive at something by accident and then I capture it, you know, quickly. And so that's what I like about all that that stuff. I mean there are some modules i bought for instance i've got a couple of eventide h3000s and a, and H a h9000 which is an incredible machine but the h3000s i've probably got about a thousand presets in them but one of them stays on one setting for about 15 years <laughs> and doesn't move off it you know it just happens to be a great long you know massive reverb which is just incredibly useful. You, and, you, you know, I just, I just use that all the time. So it's just, it's just
0: set to that and nothing else. Again, from a creative process, um, do you end up interfacing with the actors in any way, or are you strictly dealing with the level of the director and the producer for the most part?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm not, I'm not usually involved with the actors. I mean, I'm down to Nabia I kind of get a bit involved if there's any music on set you know to be envisioned to be done but no generally no i mean it was, it was, music's always like the last thing that's going on you know
0: goes on they've already um they've already filmed it and from your perspective uh you know are, are you writing any sort of pop music or you know three minute song kind of music or are you strictly within a compositional framework
1: no i mean not anymore i used to do combine those things about 20 years ago but the The film and TV work has just completely taken over. Thing I must warn people about is that I've now done so much different kind of style of music that uh, you know my wife sometimes says to me, "Why don't you take some time off and do your own stuff?" And And I, I think, well, what is my own stuff? Right. You know, I've done I've done so many different things that I I don't I don't really know anymore. You know, is it The Last Kingdom or is it you know more like. You know, Downton Abbey or, you know, or Shetland or something, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible.
0: John, I often have a lot of young clients who are interested in doing music as a career. The the odds are so against you in terms of making it that it's, it's almost a miracle to realize any sort of major success. Uh, You know, certainly that's been my impression, I guess. Is my perception of the difficulty of breaking into music accurate? And if so, if someone is interested in music, how would you suggest they go about doing it? What's a what's a, maybe a viable or sustainable way of, of at least making the attempt?
1: Gosh, I mean that's such a difficult one, Pete. Because of course you know t- times change. Um, you know all the advice I give kind of was probably probably kind of relevant. You know, thirty years ago. I'm I'm just not so sure if it's relevant anymore i i think having that combination of of you know a reasonable musical education and um but with the ability to be open to other kinds of music i think is massively important now these days
0: one thing I want to ask you about real quick is artists are often stereotyped as being sort of like aloof and, you know, walking around in their own head, things like that. But I would imagine to function in the environment that you've been successful in, you've got to be actually quite conscientious on time, attuned to deadlines, you know, budgets, things like that. So is that a, is that a part of making it? Is that you, you know, Let's say talent being equal and all that kind of stuff you've got to you've got to be able to deliver and be conscientious and organized and all those kind of things
1: oh uh, yeah i mean there's there's definitely no question that i've you know I'm also quite easy to work with as well I don't have you know a massive ego that you know if I'm asked to rewrite something I'll just go on and do it you know i don't I don't really argue with a director or a producer i mean i can I can state my point, but i don't really. I've very, very rarely fallen into an argument. And and of course it's you know, it's absolutely essential that you, you know, deliver on time and under budget. Um and I've just managed to do that. Yeah. Um and I, I mean it's definitely an industry that because you know, a director and a producer don't really know how to discuss music. That's a, this is actually this is something we haven't really thought about because it's music is a really difficult thing to talk about. So, for a director or a producer to get across their point, if they if they find a composer that they can build a sort of musical language with, you know, then that's half the battle, and they'll come back to you, you know, time and time again because you've already built up this kind of language of being able to discuss what it is that they're, you know, after. Um. And for instance, I've done a lot of work with the producer of *Downton Abbey*, Gareth Neame, and I've been working with him for about twenty years now. Over on one, pro- sometimes he's been an executive producer. Um, uh we we've built up this musical language together that he can he can describe kind of what it was is he want, and I and I deliver it, and 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 that's worked you know really well um, for the both of us. So he for him to be in the middle of producing a show and then to have to start again with another composer to develop that kind of level of language and our ability to be able to discuss what it is is something he could probably do without you know so he keeps coming back to me because we've already got even though it might be a completely different job we've already got this kind of mutual language does that make
0: sense? No, it sure does. It sounds like a uh, chemistry in a way, right? Yeah. Like that where a, uh, a, a bass player and a drummer can just kind of look at each other and be able to sort of tra- okay, you're about to do this and I I can feel that it's coming and you just kind of without almost without words, be able to sort of uh, know where the other is yeah. going. It sounds like you guys have that sort of shared understanding without completely spelling it out. He, he can say enough that you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get what you want. And then you can go and translate that into an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: that's exactly it.
0: Yeah. John, if people want to learn more about you, uh where can they go? Um, good question. You've got a
1: website, um dot com. Jlun dot com. I'm not that good on Facebook. I, um I'm better on Twitter. Um obviously a lot of my music is on, you know, Spotify, iTunes, um, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, anybody wants to leave an email for me or, you know, ask me a question, they can leave it on my website. And, you know, um, I mean, I might not get back to them within the minute, but, you know, I can eventually, I'll get there. And, I've, you know, and I'm happy to, you know, answer, you know, people's questions. And um, so feel free.
0: No, And I can uh, vouch for that, John. I was so delighted when you replied to my email, I I would say in very short order. And um, it it was just, I was so happy that we would be able to have this chat today. Music has meant so much to me and uh, I'm so interested in the creative process and especially where music and emotions interface. And I thought we had a really interesting discussion today around that. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, that was fascinating. That's what I love about these things, Pete. It It makes you question what you do yourself because so much of what i do is is instinctual but actually being interviewed about it and you know forces you to analyze what you do so i'm um, so i always find them really fascinating
0: wonderful you know it was, it was funny as we were chatting i was thinking god i hope i don't wreck his creative process by getting him to make it too explicit when really you're you're you know flying on instinct because that can happen right when people start to uh, overthink things in a creative endeavor they'll they'll kind of like mess it up a little bit kind of <laughs> grinds up the gear. So I don't think we're in any, any danger of that, but that did occur to me that, you know, creative processes sometimes are best felt rather than uh, maybe articulated, but it is, ne- is yeah, it, it is, it is net nevertheless interesting to, uh, to, to ponder, let's say. Yeah. 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 Well, John, listen, thanks so much. Uh, congrats on the new studio. It looks wonderful. And uh, cheers! I, I, I hope we get to chat soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer, this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests, content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.